0: I'm going to share with you the conclusion of a message preached at Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church. As we've been looking at this Lost Truth series for a number of weeks, verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him. Now let's talk about that word purpose. God saved you on purpose. If you look up the word purpose, it occurs 12 times in the New Testament. Four of those times, it occurs as the word showbread. The showbread is what the priest placed in the temple on the table of the showbread that sat before the Holy of Holies. What a showbread had to do with God predestinated a people according to his purpose. Easton's Bible dictionary says it is the presence bread. If you were a Jewish priest, a Levitical priest, and as you go in that tabernacle and you see that big curtain that covers the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, to your right on the north side would be the table of the showbread. And on that table, that bread was always beholding the Holy of Holies. What did Jesus say that He was when He came? He said, I am the bread of God. Everything in that temple represented something about Jesus Christ. And the bread of the face was in the face of the Holy of Holies, which was behind the curtain. Think about it. Use your spiritual thinking cap. He says, in whom we have an inheritance being predestinated according to the showbread of God. Are you with me? It's the showbread. It's Christ Himself that is the purpose of God in setting your destination for heaven. So we don't go to the temple and we don't petition the priest to carry a lamb in there and enter the Holy of Holies once a year because Christ had the bread of God, the showbread, and literally when He came in bodily form, He was showing Himself as the bread of God. You get that? I don't know if that touches you, but it touches me deeply. It took the Son of God, manifested in flesh, He becomes flesh in order to demonstrate Himself as the bread of God. God's purpose, listen to me now, it's clearly seen in what Christ did. Because He's the showbread, you see? The purpose of God is expressed clearly through the showbread of God, which is Jesus Christ. By the way, he clearly states his purpose in John 6, 35-40. As they're asking him, that's that bread of God. The bread of life discourse. Where he says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. I am the one that you've been looking for. I am the bread of God. And he says, God has sent me down from heaven to do his will. And this is the will of him. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose only the ones that wouldn't choose me. Is that what it says? He says, I should lose nothing. Thank you, Brother Furman. I would lose nothing. And therefore, the showbread of God who entered the Holy of Holies. You remember the Holy of Holies is not that temple there. Uh, it's just a picture. It's just a type of it. The Holy of Holies is in heaven. And you can read about that too. God's given you that information. You can read in Revelation. You can read in Ezekiel. You can see what's going on in the throne room of God because the bread of God, the living showbread of God has entered the Holy of Holies and there's no, no, no more need for that on earth. The child of grace. That's that's a little more technical than I usually get. But you can understand this. I don't care how old you are. You can understand that they laid bread before the Holy of Holies. That's what Jehovah required. And that bread was always there. And when Christ came, He was the bread. You see? That's easy to understand. And he ripped the veil of the temple in two, proving that he was the bread of God. Now we have access to the Holy of Holies, but it's not in Jerusalem. It's not in some temple that may be rebuilt back over there. It is in heaven itself. Hebrews says that. You have access to the throne room of God. Are you accessing the throne room? Do you realize your purpose, child of God? Your purpose is not to live forever on this earth. Your purpose is to live in the halls of glory forever. Forever. Because the bread of God, the purpose of God, has been manifested in Jesus Christ. He saved you on purpose. I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful thing. This is something that we've always tried to teach our children. Something my parents taught me. Looking back on some of the things that I got into, (laughs) that I tried to excel in, I think they might have taught me a little too well. You know, you can do anything. Well, you know, that may be true, but it may not be appropriate to do anything. (laughs) It was not appropriate for me to go and become a country music star. (laughs) That was not something that God had for me. It's something that I wanted to excel to. But it wasn't appropriate. See? Try to teach our children, excel to be the best that you can be. If you can be the best mathematician on the face of the planet, that's what you should be. Unfortunately, none of my folks qualify for that, (laughs) but maybe some of you do. I think it was a few years ago, brother Clay borrowed my book on the God of the mathematics because I read the first paragraph and almost had a stroke. (laughs) He said he enjoyed it. So maybe he's good at mathematics, but I'm just not good at mathematics. Whatever you're good at, whatever you're capable of, you should aspire to be the best that you can be. Now, you might think about some of the Hollywood, not Hollywood, but some of the NFL stars and some of the super sports stars or whatever. And you read about them and it just makes you sick. You know, because here's somebody that's got all this talent. They got all this ability, but they're so hung up on themselves that they can't get anywhere with it. You know, I can't remember the guy's name, but the the fellow from Texas A&M that won the Heisman several years ago, um, Mr. Football, they called him. Johnny Manziel. I mean, what a disgrace. What what talent that guy, he even beat Alabama. (laughs) Almost single-handedly. Everybody was amazed at Mr. Football. When Mr. Football gets tens of millions of dollars in a contract, and he completely blows it because he did not excel to his potential. You understand? Excel to be the best that you can be. Do you even know what you can be? Children, young folks, have you sat down with your parents and said, Mom, Dad, what do you think I can be? Well, you know, I've had that conversation with my kids and I'm like, not a mathematician. (laughs) Because of me, not because of them. I pick on that a lot, but that's just the way that it is. You can be this. You can be this. What are your gifts? What has God gifted you with? Has He gifted you with great physical ability? Has He gifted you with a great measure of common sense? Has He gifted you with a measure of understanding mathematics or engineering or biology? Well, you know, it's beautiful to see someone excel to be the best that they can be. And you don't have to be the top of the class. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You just excel to be the best that you can be. Why? Because you're here to glorify God with what God has given you. You're not here to glorify self like the NFL stars and the other stars that you see out there, the Hollywood stars. You're not here to glorify self. That's what they don't get. You're here to glorify God because God has purpose to take you to be with Him one day. So understand what your purpose is. You see, people say, well, doctrinal sermons are just not that practical. I think this is one of the most practical things I've ever studied because I know I don't belong here. I don't know I'm not going to live for eternity here. I'm going to live in heaven with God at the great gathering one day. And until then, I want to try to be the best that I can be. Child of God, you want to be the best that you can be. If you're a lawyer, be the best you can be. If you're an engineer, be the best you can be. If you're a ditch digger, a farmer, whatever it may be, be the best that you can be. A dentist, a doctor, a teacher, a whatever, an accountant, whatever you are, be the best one that you possibly can be. You see? Because you have a purpose. And your purpose is to be with God in heaven one day. He saved you on purpose. Are you excelling to your highest potential as a child of God saved on purpose? Isn't it great to know that Jesus Christ excelled to the highest possible potential he could ever reach in his efforts as the Son of God. You don't have to worry about him crying or trying to get the job done. He has gotten it done. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I was talking to a client last week and we were talking about something that this poor lady had to do related to her family. And it was just a step-by-step, step, kind of like that self for division, Brother Milam. It's just so complicated. But she had these 10 or 12 things that she had to do as I was talking to her, she was, she was like, oh boy, this is going to be tough. She's older. And I said, well, just remember this. That Solomon said, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. I will to tell you what, there hadn't been much more excitement in my life since the beginning of Lincoln Dunn. <laughs> that's exciting. The only thing that it can compare to that is when we had our own children. When When Lincoln's mother came into this, that's exciting. And for me to sit here and tell you that the Word of God says that the end of a thing is better than the beginning, the end of Lincoln's life is better than his beginning, I cannot fathom that. But I tell you on the authority of the Word of God with mansions in heaven that we have never seen and a gathering like you will never believe where Lincoln will meet his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather, where we'll all be together again, you can't fathom that. The end of your life is better than the beginning. That flies in the face of nature, doesn't it? It flies in the face of our sovereignty. I'm here and I want to live forever. I want to stay healthy and I want everything to go my way and I want to live forever. Child of grace, you will live forever, but it won't be in a natural sense. (laughs) You'll live in something better than this old dying and decaying body. Listen, he loved you on purpose. I want you to think about what you do that's not on purpose. Everything we do is on purpose. You might make a mistake every now, like the mistake I made when I reached around to spank one of the children and I spanked the wrong one. You know, I did it on purpose, but I just got the wrong one. I made a mistake. I had a friend in law school after we got out of the, after we graduated and we got out of the intensity of of just the study that goes on there and just the constant ongoing application and reading and so forth. And it's like we were free, of course, and we finished studying for the bar too. And it was like we were free. We didn't know what to do with our time. And so I was talking with this guy we were there for our swearing in. He was a friend of mine in law school. And he said, you know, I didn't know what to do with my time. So I sat down one afternoon and I started watching TV. It was a great movie. I hadn't watched movies in three years. This is a great movie. And as soon as that movie was over, another one came on. It was amazing. And I watched that one. It was about 11 o'clock. And then this other movie that I'd heard about came on. And he sat there and he watched movies for about 16 hours. And he said, I didn't mean to do that. It just kind of happened. He did it on purpose. (laughs) Even if he didn't realize what he was doing, he'd been there for that long. You do it on purpose. If you binge watch something for 16 hours or eight hours, or you do it on purpose. Everything we do, we do it on purpose. I remember telling Sister Tracy when we got married, I said, "Look, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, if I say something to you, you I'm kind of a kid or kind of, you know, Trying to be funny. I said, if I say something to you, I just want you to remember, always take this in a good way. Because that's how I mean it. Now, I've told many more lies beyond that one, you know, throughout my life. If I say something, I mean it. I mean it. I do it on purpose, whether it's good or bad. Guys, just mark that one off the list when you get married. Because you know you're going to say some things that you shouldn't say. And you're going to mean to say some things that you shouldn't say. But we do it on purpose. What do you do in the morning when you get up? You put your clothes on. You get ready. put your clothes on. Tie your shoes. You do it on purpose. You go to work on purpose. Think about the things that we do on purpose. A few weeks ago, we planned a vacation. And we went on purpose. We had everything planned out. We had to. We had to plan this and this and this. Where we're going to be. What we're going to do. What time we're going to get there. We do it on purpose. That's how we're geared. That's how we're made. In a much greater way. God's got his own purpose. <laughs> and it's demonstrated in Christ. And he's shown us his purpose. And he is intentional. With what he does with you, how he loves you, and how he's going to bring you to be with him one day. But remember this, he's here now in his spirit, in his church. That's what he put here as as a place to harbor his children before they get to him. It's like a it's like a talisman, if you will. It's like a place where a touchstone where you can go and touch God and you can feel God and you can experience God in the preaching of the gospel and the singing of the hymns and the fellowship of the saints and the purpose of God. God intends this church here that was established in 1901 that is still here praise be to God he intended for it to be here to harbor and house you until you get to heaven some of the older ones a little little closer maybe to that time when they're going to leave the harbor house and they're going to enter into the real home there's no greater place that you can purpose to be on a week to week basis than the church of God no greater place. Think about it. Everything we do, we do it deliberately. We do it on purpose. He's coming. He has a schedule. How will he find us when he comes? Second Peter three, which is where we left off last week. Second Peter three is all about the second coming. It talks about what it's going to be look like, what they think, the way things are going to be when the Lord comes. Gives you detailed information about what he's going to do when he comes. I won't rehash all that. I won't reread that. But when you get down to verse 11, he says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. You say, Brother Tim, you mean your 1993 Broncos that you love so much? You mean the Lord's not going to let you take that with you to heaven? (laughs) No, he's not. And I'm fine with that. I'd much rather have a chariot of fire than a 93 Bronco, okay? But now while we're here, I'm going to enjoy it. Certainly going to enjoy it. Do you mean that those favorite things, do you mean that those favorite things that I have paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars are, not me, but you, through the years and put in storage, just so I could go once every 10 years and look at them and go, ah, they're mine. Do you mean those things are not going to be allowed to go with me? They're not going to go with you, child of God. I've told you before, the old saying goes, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You've never seen that. Now, I have seen some people buried with their cars and buried with their things. As a matter of fact, in Egypt, they did that. They buried all, can you imagine? The gold that they buried those pharaohs with could have fed the societies for probably decades during years of famine. They could use that to purchase food if it was available, like in the days of Joseph. But they were so selfish and so focused on this life that they buried millions and millions of dollars of gold and silver and precious stones with them. And you know what they're doing there now today? Their corpses are rotting. And that gold is just sitting around them. If they still had not found some of them, they found most of them. You can't take it with you when you go. So we should live in a way that we know that. When I was in Africa... I had a little flutter in my heart every morning I'd get up and I'd look and I'd say Just seven more days <laughs> I'll tell you one of the One of the most dejecting times in my life That the Lord blessed was when I had to go to Ghana By myself You know brother uh, Listen to brother Sam Bryant And you know, told brother David He said you can just get your uh, You can get your visa when you get over there brother David and We get to the, the door going into the plane And they said sir where's your visa <laughs> And I said here's mine David said I hey, ain't got one you have never seen a lost puppy look on the in the eyes of Brother Tim McCool as he walked down that runway, looking back at Brother David, waving at him. <laughs> Lord have mercy! I, I in some ways I wish I hadn't have gone, but in other ways, that eight day experience of being over there by myself, it went by just like that. You know why? Because I felt the presence of God like I've never felt him over there in the midst of a lonely. And by the way, you remember. We never went back after that. Some things happened on that trip. I said, I'm done with going to Ghana. We were lied to and we were deceived. Never went back. And, of course, it would be me to draw that straw to go and have to have that happen, right? (laughs) Well, it was me. But in those eight days, I don't remember checking my clock too much or checking the time too much. I just remember the days passing, feeling the manifest presence of the Spirit of God. In sleep, waking up, going about our business doing the things that we did. You know when when that plane took off from Ghana. I said a prayer. The brother who asked us to come over there. He said I do not think you will come back brother Tim. I said you're right. (laughs) Because I'm not coming back. And I got on that plane. And as the plane took off. I said a prayer. I said Lord. I commend these people that we've taught the truth to. To your spirit. I commend those that we've baptized to your spirit because only you, only the spirit of God is going to be able to do anything over here. I'll never come back again, Lord, unless you direct me to. And it's very, very manifest because, you know, you never say never. You never say never. (laughs) He said, I'll never join that old Baptist church. You better not ever say never. (laughs) I'll never forgive that. Never say never. (laughs) God will make you eat crow when you say never. So it's been 14 years, 13 years. Brother Vernon Johnson got a call from a brother over there that we baptized. He said, Brother Vernon, a different brother. He said, Brother Vernon, I was baptized by you and Brother Tim when you came over here back in 2010 or whatever it was. He said, we've been meeting for all these years since y'all left. I've been teaching them the doctrines of grace. Would you come up back over here and spend some time with us? He think God heard my prayer. You think he answered that prayer? Out of all that loneliness and all that dejectedness and feeling like I was on the back side of the world. I tell you, God was there. I don't care if it's Africa. I don't care if it's Zion. I don't care if it's a graveside. I don't care if it's the bedside of a, of a sick or dying loved one. I tell you, God is there. Are you in tune to his presence? Because he purposes to save you. You're going to be there as a chosen child of God. Looking unto, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, Look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. Did you notice that? He says, seeing that you are looking for those things. Child of grace, are you looking for those things? Or are you just looking for the next paycheck or the next, uh, the next thing that promotes you or the next thing that makes you feel good? I tell you, are we looking for the coming of God because he has purposed that He's going to have you there. And He's purposed on His timeline and on His schedule. It says in the Revelation of the last few verses there, He says, Behold, I come. He's coming on time. He's not going to be a day late. He's not going to be a day early or a minute early. He's coming on time. And you remember what He's waiting for. You say, what is He waiting for? He's waiting for that last child of promise that He knew before the foundation of the world to be born again. And then when He is born again, when that child is born again, it could be a child in the womb like John the Baptist. It could be a wicked thief on the cross at the end of His life. It could be a, a, a Christian-hating man like Paul, Saul of Tarsus. It could be David while he was a toddler upon his mother's breast. It could be anyone that was chosen before the foundation of the world. But when that last one is come, when is born again, He's coming. Nothing else withholds. Don't listen to the dispensationalists. Don't listen to the end timers. Don't listen to the hagies of the world that are scaring the socks off of people. Don't listen to the left-behinds and all of that. Child of grace, the next greatest event. is His coming, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God when the gathering will bring us all back together. And we'll be in the presence of the showbread. <laughs> listen, real right, Real quickly. I got to, I've got. i got two or three weeks built up here, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got to shut this thing down somewhere. Maybe this will help you understand the showbread just a little bit more. Maybe some of you seen the movie Gladiator. Or maybe some of you read about mythology. It was a custom of the heathen pagan worshipers. They would bring a food and a drink offering to their God. You know, some of the movies, you'll see them. And if you do some reading, you'll see they'll pour a drink of wine or something and put it on their altar for their little God, little G-God. You see, they'd put... Bread or something. They say, well, I think, you know, if that was me living back then, I'd probably say, well, I like Reese's Cups. I'd probably give him a Reese's Cup. (laughs) But then I'd probably sneak back later and snatch it because I love it too much. (laughs) But they put food out for their God. But let me tell you something. In a very similar way, the children of Israel and the Levitical priesthood would put food out for God. Let me tell you something. It's not because God was hungry. God says in the Psalms, he says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. If I was thirsty, I wouldn't ask you to bring me drink because the cattle of a thousand hills are His and the, the waters of the earth are His. But you understand, it was a pagan ritual to put out food for the god, the false god. Where do you think they got that from? You bring the showbread into the temple and you set it on the table of the showbread. The face of God beholds the showbread. How many was it? Do y'all remember? How many? Twelve. Thank you. Twelve. And they represented the twelve tribes of Israel. They represented the people of God. Are you with me? When Jesus Christ went back to heaven, and there's no more need for the temple, I tell you, he represented the supernatural Israel, the people of God. So that bread that was laid on the the table of the showbread right there, it's a representation of the people of God. Not only does it represent Jesus, the showbread, the bread of God, but it represents the people of God for whom Jesus died. I tell you, child of grace, our God is hungry. He's hungry. But He's not hungry for food and He's not hungry for drink. He's hungry for you, child of God. He's hungry for your presence in heaven. He will not be satisfied without having His meal. What have I told you for week after week after week of what we're going to do when we get there? We're going to sit down at the table of God and we're going to have the greatest feast that's ever been known. God will be feasting on His Son and upon you, your presence there. You see, in one sense, you are the showbread because you, in Christ... We're represented. Oh, God's hungry. If he was hungry, in a natural sense, would he ask you? No. He has no need to. He's hungry for your presence with him. I tell you, I don't know, providentially, this is probably a terrible message for me to preach after having been gone out of a couple services. Because I was hungry. I'm hungry for you. We ought to be hungry for each other, child of God. We ought to know each other better now than we did last week and the next week better than we did this week. God is hungry for you and you will be His bread in heaven. You hear me? Not only will Christ be the showbread that got you there, but you will be the bread of God to satiate the hunger of God, to slake the thirst of God when we reach those pearly gates. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this is a theme all throughout history. It just so happens I was reading recently a long book by Dostoevsky. And there's a lot of things going on in that book. It's about 700 pages. But one of the themes that goes on in that book is there's a little boy who was at odds with the rest of his little friends. And the little boy got sick and he was on his deathbed. I know it's fiction, but by goodness, it's good fiction. (laughs) Because I've had little boys on their deathbed before. I've lost little friends before. But those 11 or 10-year-old boys, this little boy who they were at odds with is dying and all the little friends come and they make up. The book is the brothers Karamazov. The last three paragraphs of that book will stick with me till my dying day. Because the little boy dies. And I leave you this morning with the last three, if I can read them. <laughs> the last three paragraphs of that book. As the little boys are leaving the funeral, they've gathered around the preacher. They've gathered around one of the brothers, Karamazov, who is the preacher. And one of the little boys cries out and he says, Karamazov... Can it be true what's taught us in religion that we shall all rise again from the dead and shall live and see each other again? And everyone, and Eliusha too, the little boy, and the brother says, Certainly we shall all rise again. Certainly we shall see each other and shall tell each other with joy and gladness all that has happened. He answered half laughing, half enthusiastic. And the little boy says, Ah, how splendid it will be. (laughs) How splendid it will be. Next time you sit down to binge watch something for 16 hours, next time somebody thinks about ingesting something that is harmful to them, next time you think about going into those dark places that we all get into, next time you think about the loss of that loved one, next time you're faced with that trial or that trouble or that tragedy, you remember it's God's purpose to take you away from all of that. All the little children that have died like this one, all of the little ones that we've lost, the old ones, the middle-aged ones. Live with purpose. Live with the purpose of God, the glorious purpose upon your life. And that is that we shall all be together again one day. That makes me want to shout for joy. It makes me want to weep like a baby. and It makes me want to get up in the morning and with purpose, serve God. With purpose, forgive people that have harmed me. With purpose, minister to the people of God with purpose, serve the people of God with purpose, go to work and do what I do to the glory of God with purpose, because I know that God has purposed for me to be with him one day. It's the least we can do this morning. If you believe God has purposed to save you and to be with him in heaven, there's no greater thing you can do in this life. If you haven't done it than to walk the aisle, confess that you're a sinner and say with purpose of heart, I want to serve my God who has purposed to save me.